doing today? We doing okay? Well, I want to start off with a controversial statement. Starbucks isn't that good. I was waiting for someone to throw their venti at me. At a time when you can find a Starbucks on every corner, that's a bit controversial. But notice, I didn't say Starbucks isn't good. I just don't think it's that good. If you work there or have a particular affinity for Starbucks, I apologize. I do go to Starbucks pretty frequently, actually. Uh, I like um, their lighter roasts because I'm, I'm really snobbish when it comes to coffee. Uh, their lighter roasts don't taste as burnt. And if I feel special, I'll get uh, a cafe latte or I think their best drink, their best specialty drink is a flat white, a tall flat white. I'll let you write that down. Um, well, there are some people who love Starbucks, uh, who just like, even coffee in general doesn't appeal to them. They still love Starbucks. They, they do what Starbucks wants them to do. It's like, they're, it's their third stop between home and work. They want to be regulars at Starbucks. Then there are those uh, who, like me, who are like me who don't like Starbucks just because it's too mainstream, uh, because I want to be cool and because I'm too snobbish about coffee. Uh, then there are others, maybe like you, who don't really care, who like, is just kind of over your head. Uh, a little part of my heart dies when someone tells me uh, they don't like coffee. Uh, or, when, uh, or when they say, like, yo, I just like truck stop coffee, you know? Um, yeah, sometimes it's good. Um, but speaking of controversial statements and Starbucks, the company itself isn't without controversy. In fact, you could kind of take your pick if, if you want to do that. Um, the most obvious incident comes, it kind of came to a head a couple years ago, and it relates to cups. Yes, the, the containers that hold your coffee. Uh, and the cups came at Christmas time, or if you prefer, winter time. Um, certain portions of Starbucks clientele were upset that their cups around Christmas time were less Christmassy. So you could find uh, pictures online from like 2009 to 2015, and you'll see like. Uh, 2009, they had snowmen and uh, ornaments and different decorations, and they just slowly remove everything until 2015, it was just a red cup. Uh, and some people were upset about that. Um, and so, like a lot of controversies, it's not so much about the incident itself that's the big deal, right? It's kind of what is underneath the incident. Uh, so in people's minds, uh, the cups, the removing of the decorations, the Christmas decorations, represented the larger war on Christmas and Christians. While, yes, uh, there are attitudes uh, in our culture toward Christian and biblical ethics and living uh, that are growing more and more sour, more and more hostile. Um, but the fact that there's so much hoopla over cups um, reminds us that oftentimes Americans just love controversy. Americans just love something to be upset about. Well, controversy isn't a new concept. We noticed last week we started in chapter 2 of Mark. We looked at the first 17 chapters. 
And you can go ahead and turn there. If you have a pew Bible, it's going to be on page 337, I believe. Is that right? Okay. We're going to get to the next page today. This is really exciting. 837. I knew the 37 was right. Thank you. Um, so controversy isn't a new concept. And we're in kind of this section of Mark um, that we're going to close out today. And if the opening part of Mark's book shows us how Jesus bursts on to the seam, how he is too great to be ignored, how his fame keeps on spreading throughout Galilee, then beginning in chapter 2, Mark shows us that Jesus' ministry isn't without opposition. So if you're jumping in midstream, uh, we're in the middle of our chapter of, uh, of our study of the Gospel of Mark. Um, so if you have one of these sermon schedule cards, uh, you can see this. You can pick one of these up in the lobby. If you don't have one of these, I'd encourage you to pick one up. Um, it shows the text uh, on Mark, which I'm going to preach in the future, shows what we've covered in the past weeks. And the hope of it is that if you know what's coming, you can read ahead and get a sneak peek of what's coming next Sunday and sort of um, prepare your hearts to uh, begin to think about how we can apply uh, God's word to our lives. Um, but if you have one of these sermon uh, schedule cards, you'll see that the title of this series is Jesus 101. Jesus 101. One, Jesus 101 meaning that it's a kind of introductory course of who Jesus is. Because that reflects Mark's goal in his book. Right? He wants, we, we've been using this analogy. If, if he presents a stage, he wants Jesus to be the sole subject of his stage. The spotlight to always be on him and kind of have as least as much of set as possible. Right? He wants all the focus to be on Jesus. And he reveals who he is pretty much based on what Jesus does. The book of Mark is action-packed. It's just uh, account after account after account after account. And he's showing us who Jesus is based on what he does. So if we are the church of Jesus Christ, if he has purchased us by his blood, if we are his body and he is our head, then we should be people who know him, who get to know him better for the rest of our lives. In fact, we'll get to know him for the rest of eternity. He is enough to be praised ceaselessly, endlessly, for all of eternity. And so when we get to know Jesus better, even by studying his life, then we can make him known better. So Jesus 101, the Gospel of Mark. So the section under our consideration today builds off of what we looked at last week. So there are five different stories, or they're often referred to as pericopes, uh, from chapter 2, verse 1, to chapter 3, verse 6. And as we look at this section as a whole, we can hold two truths at the same time. Right? We, uh, on the one hand, we can hold that we see Jesus' authority clearer and clearer, that it's a unique kind of authority, that it's a great authority, and even at times we get a glimpse that it's authority that's equal to God himself. On the other hand we go through these five different accounts or pericopes, we can hold the fact that opposition to Jesus is rising. That in each one of these, uh, hostility towards Jesus intensifies. And so this controversy displays itself through different groups, especially a group called the Pharisees, as we'll see today. 
We see this controversy in groups questioning what Jesus is doing, opposing him, and eventually, we're going to look at today, plotting to kill Jesus. So the incidents that give rise to this controversy, like the Starbucks cups, they, they aren't incidental, right? And we're going to look at those. But what's underneath all these incidents is a claim to real high authority, and that's what gives to the controversy. So authority, controversy. So as we walk through these three paracopes or these three stories of this section, I think our main takeaway should be this. You can find it in your bulletin. The one who knows he changes everything does change everything. He has, the one with this authority changes everything. We're going to see what he changes today. Yet he is the same one who knows that he came to die. So that somehow the, this authority and that this opposition, they're not in conflict with one another. In fact, it, it's, it's a part of the plan. And we're going to see that today. That uh, We'll see this developed and demonstrated in three uh, movements of chapter 2, verse 1, through chapter 3, verse 6. Just whole big uh, five accounts of Jesus' authority and opposition. That Jesus changes fasting to rejoicing. That Jesus changes uh, the restriction of life to giving life. And finally, Jesus changes malice to mercy. So in light of that main point that Jesus changes everything, and yet he knows he's going to be opposed and eventually to die in our place, so we want to explore on what basis does Jesus change everything? And how does he do that? And we also want to explore, as always, how we should live in light of who Jesus is. Answering the question, is he worthy of our trust? So first, Jesus changes fasting to rejoicing. Uh, so picking up from last week, since these stories are part of a bigger section, they're structured similarly. Even, they're even similar in length. So they, they usually go something like this. People see a controversial thing that Jesus is doing or something that his disciples are doing. And then they approach Jesus and they confront him and they question him. It's like, Jesus, what gives with what's going on here? And then Jesus responds and tells of something of who he is. So that same kind of pattern is going to be set in all three of our stories today. So um, listen for all those elements, his authority and the opposition. And we're going to structure each story similarly to how we did last week. Uh, we'll see, notice the question and notice the response. The question and response. Listen for that as we read Mark chapter 2, verses 18 to 22. Verses 18 to 22. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while they have the bridegroom? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth 
on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. So the question and the response. So right off the bat, we can make some basic observations about the text. So the question being asked, pretty simple to see, right? You see it in verse 18. Why don't you fast? We see who is asking this to Jesus. We see people come to Jesus to ask this question. Basic groundwork observations. And why are they asking Jesus this? What prompts them to come to Jesus and ask this question? Well, they see that that John John the Baptist's disciples are fasting, that the Pharisees are fasting, other groups fast. So they come to Jesus and say, hey, we see John the Baptist's disciples fasting. You know, his disciples, they fasted because they longed for the time when the Messiah would finally arrive. And they see the Pharisees were fasting. Pharisees literally means separated ones or holy ones. And this is a group that held to a strict interpretation of God's law, right? the first five books of the Bible, known as the Torah. And so they were strict with it because Israel, their identity was under threat because they were occupied by a foreign nation. And so not only were they occupied just like militarily, but even the, the dominant ideas of the day right, would threaten to squash out Israel. So the Pharisees wanted to hold on tight to what made Israel distinct. So here, John the Baptist's disciples fast. The Pharisees fast, meaning they they restrain from eating food or sometimes drinking. The Pharisees would usually do this twice a week. That's pretty intense. Twice a week from dawn to sunset, they wouldn't eat. Now this shows us that fasting was just kind of part and parcel of Jewish religious life. Everybody did it. It was normal. So knowing that helps us to see what's behind this people's question. They come to Jesus and essentially ask, Jesus, I don't know if you know, but fasting has kind of been the in thing for a while. And you see, you see all these other groups fasting, You know, if you want to be taken seriously as a movement of God, maybe your disciples should start fasting too. Well, here then we have the response. The question and the response. What does Jesus say? Well, Jesus responds to a question in classic Jesus fashion with another question. In fact, he asks three different questions. And just as a side note, I like doing these side notes. Uh, As a side note, there is some wisdom uh, in responding with a question. Um, in fact, Dean, I was going to point you out, Dean, Dean is a great resource for this. If you want to know about that, ask Dean. Uh, if you are afraid to uh, share the gospel with somebody, or if you have shared the gospel with someone, and it's risen to, and the situation's kind of escalated, there's power and wisdom in asking sort of de-escalating questions, uh, and asking questions that help clarify the person's point of view. Um, so, yeah, ask Dean about that. Um, So Jesus responds to their question with another question. And notice his response isn't snarky. His response isn't snarky. He says, 
Um, well, if you want me to do everything that the Pharisees and John the Baptist's disciples are doing, uh, if they jumped off a bridge, would you tell me to jump off a bridge? Um, Jesus isn't snarky. Neither does Jesus respond by denying the practice of fasting. In fact, even early Christians would fast. You look at places like Acts chapter 13 and 14. Uh, fasting there is associated with seeking God in prayer. And it's, it's sort of a discipline among modern Christians that's been lost, right? And so uh, depending on your, on your state of health or uh, how well you could do this, um, consider fasting. It rids us of distraction. It helps us to focus and remind us of our dependence on God. Um, so they ask Jesus, why aren't you fasting? And Jesus doesn't respond with snarkiness, and he doesn't respond by denying fasting. If you look at verses 19 to 22, the main thing, the main point of Jesus' response is that he denies that fasting is appropriate at this time. He denies the appropriateness of the timing of fasting. Ultimately, what's the reason for that? It's because he is there. It's because the one with his kind of authority is finally arrived. Fasting, as they understood it, was inappropriate at that time. So he demonstrates that point. He uses three analogies, right? First, he talks about a wedding. You look at verse 19, and you say, if, if you thought, say, yes to the dress in our wedding culture is a little over the top, you don't know first century Jewish weddings because their weddings lasted for a week, and kind of everything shut down and everyone was invited. And it was a party pretty much the whole time. You see a, a glimpse of this in the wedding at Cana in John chapter 2. So even today, you don't even need to know the background info of Jewish weddings to know what the point Jesus is making. What can't you do until the bride and the groom show up? You can't eat. Now, if it's a good wedding, they'll have hors d'oeuvres and appetizers. Um, in fact, I was, I was at a wedding this past summer, probably 200 people. Ceremony's over. They send us you know, upstairs to a room probably half the size, cramped with 200 people. Now, there were some cheese and crackers and stuff. Um, and then we expect, all right, we're going to wait. Uh, we, you know that going in. Bride and groom are out taking pictures. Half hour goes by. Yeah, pretty normal, par for the course hour goes by. We should be eating pretty soon, right? We should be going back downstairs. Hour and a half goes by. Now it's like, well, what gives? We're hungry. Then two hours go by. And then we're at the point of, have you ever heard the word hangry? Uh, where you're hungry and angry. So I, what I was going to do when I saw the bride and the groom, I was going to eat. So here with Jesus, these people have been waiting too long for his arrival to keep on mourning and fasting. The bridegroom is here. And if, you're, if you've been at a wedding where you love the bride and the groom, where you love the couple, it's just, it's just a joyous occasion. The bridegroom is here. And in fact, that's an audacious claim. We read in Jeremiah 31, do you know who was identified as the bridegroom in the Old Testament? It wasn't the Messiah. It was God himself. And Jesus is saying, the bridegroom is here. 
So Jesus is the bridegroom, and the wedding guests are literally not able to fast when he is around. And we'll come back to what it means when he's taken away, what, what they have to do when he's not around. But for now, we go on to verses 21 to 22. Jesus begins to talk about patches and wineskins. He says that a new patch can't be attached to an old garment, and new wine can't be put into old wineskins. He's stressing the same point as the wedding analogy. He says that these things are incompatible. Um, dads keep jeans for a really long time. Uh, they keep je- jeans for 20, 30 years. Uh, and so think of the incompatibility uh, wearing a 30-year-old pair of jeans with a brand-new dress shirt. Um, I don't know if that works, but it, it, they're incompatible. So again, here Mark is showing us who Jesus is and what his arrival meant. He's showing us here that his arrival means that something new is here. Something new that was anticipated in places like Jeremiah 31, where God foretold of a new covenant, a new age where everyone would know him, where everyone would have forgiveness of sins, everyone would have unmitigated access to God. And friends, what Jesus is saying here is that that time of anticipation is over. The bridegroom's here. God's promises are fulfilled with the arrival of Jesus. And so these people come up and and ask Jesus, you know, why why aren't your followers fasting? And Jesus says, like, no, 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 you don't even understand. I'm not just another movement. I'm the bridegroom. He tells them to wake up, to join the wedding celebration. Hadn't they seen what he'd been doing? Something new is here. And indeed, what what Jesus brings is himself. And that calls for hallelujah. Hallelujah is sort of a throwaway word. But hallelujah that Jesus changes everything. Hallelujah that Jesus has brought the new age of fulfillment. Hallelujah that Jesus has done what we never could do. Hallelujah that something like John 3.16 is true. Hallelujah, that not only are we forgiven of our sins, but friends, we are no longer slaves to sin. Hallelujah, that Jesus lives ever to intercede for us. Friends, it's done. It's finished. Hope is here so we can celebrate. So, has Jesus brought something new for you? If you think of your life as sort of a cabinet, Right? You, you got your, your work drawer, maybe your family drawer, uh, other relationships drawer, maybe a drawer for a hobby, uh, your insecurities drawer. Um, what Jesus is saying here is that a proper response to him isn't simply adding another compartment or drawer. I was like, oh, that, this is a new drawer. I haven't noticed it before. This could be my religion drawer. No, Jesus is saying we, we don't add Jesus to the agenda of our already busy lives. He wants all of it. He wants all of it. A new, new wineskins. A, a new approach. He wants to transform how we do everything. 
all that we have and all that we are, we commit and we entrust to Jesus. Friends, he's able to carry it. Maybe you need to do that for the first time today, to forsake living for yourself and entrust all of your life to Christ. All those who believe in him, he has canceled out their sin by carrying it on the cross and rising again. Friends, that's joyous news that the bridegroom's here. But it's not always so easy to stay at the wedding celebration. You know, not all of life are, is sort of mountaintop experiences of exuberant joy. Right? Life is routine. Depression is real. Trials are real. So renewing the joy of wedding celebration, the joy of who Jesus is and that he has come, often looks like just continuing to come to him to find rest. Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28, Jesus says, uh, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So there is peace in knowing that the one who came to die for you is the one who lives and is near you and is with you. So Jesus knew that his arrival meant joy. But a verse like verse 20 shows us that he also knew that victory would come at the price of his life. The bridegroom would be taken away. And that's not how weddings normally end. So here we see again his authority and the opposition to him. But both of those, those things are part of the plan. The one who was taken away did not stay away. The one who died and was buried did not stay in the grave. He is our risen Lord, who has told, you, who has told us in Matthew 28 that he is with us always, even to the end of the age. So there may be many reasons for fasting and mourning. Life is hard. The world is fallen. But the fact that our king is with us, that calls for celebration. It calls for joy. And it calls for rest. Friends, not, that's not all Jesus changes. We keep going and we read of how based on Jesus' authority, Living for him doesn't look like restricting life. It looks like giving life, that he gives us life. Not, he doesn't restrict our lives. So Jesus changes the restriction of life to the giving of life. Verses 23 to 28 Matthew, uh, of Mark 2. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was in hungry? He and those who were with him. How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Question, response. 
Okay, it's the same basic groundwork as before. We look at the question in verse 24. This time, it's the Pharisees questioning Jesus. And once again, they come to Jesus questioning him because he and his disciples are doing something controversial. Here, Jesus' disciples are apparently breaking God's law concerning the Sabbath. They even tell Jesus, look at what your disciples are doing. Now, it's hard for us to appreciate the significance of the Sabbath day uh, in the minds of these Hebrews. You know, the Sabbath was seen as one of Israel's greatest gifts. It was one of the things that set them apart from all the different nations. In fact, I'm not even sure if there's any kind of American equivalent. So the Sabbath was instituted based on God's activity in creation, right? That namely on the last day of the week, he rested. So then he calls his people, Israel, to rest, to cease from labor on the last day of the week. You see that it's the fourth commandment of the Ten Commandments, and it's repeated several times throughout the Torah, throughout those first five books, including in a place like Exodus 35, where it's clear that no work is to be done on the Sabbath, sunset Friday to sunset Saturday. No work. So remember what the Pharisees uh, or what their mantra is. Right? So in light of them seeing what the disciples are doing, in light of knowing the Sabbath law, the Pharisees see Jesus' disciples and conclude that they are breaking the Sabbath. A huge deal. Observe in verse 23 that the disciples are plucking heads of grain in a field. Now, I have never done that. Uh, I don't know if you have. Uh, but we know that this act itself... Deuteronomy 23, 25. The act itself isn't illegal. Uh, the, the Bible permits it so that people wouldn't go hungry. They could have leftovers from the harvest. Nor was it that this act was particularly unclean or gross. I kind of think of you know, eating leftovers in public. Uh, you know, Buddy the Elf eating the gum stuck to the handrail of a subway. Uh, it's not free candy. Uh, no, the, the Pharisees considered this act to be work. They considered this act to be harvesting. So they wanted so badly to preserve the Sabbath, to preserve Israel, that they set up hedges around the law, right? Think of the Pharisees like the ADT of the Old Covenant law, right? Uh, They got barbed wire, uh, surveillance cameras. They don't want anyone even coming near it. So they're telling Jesus, your disciples are breaking the Sabbath. And how does Jesus respond? I think it's helpful if we look at Jesus' main point in verses 27 and 28 first. And there we read that the Sabbath was made for man and that the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So basically, the Sabbath was made to benefit people. And Jesus should know that because he himself is Lord of the Sabbath. So he goes on to prove this point by pointing to a precedent set in Scripture. Uh, Verses 25 to 26. He appeals to what David and his men did in 2 Samuel 21. And at this point, King David isn't a king yet. In fact, he's a fugitive on the run from King Saul. 
And so he goes and he comes to the tabernacle and his men are hungry and famished. And just as, and as another side note, you'll notice that the text uh, says that it was during the time of the priest called uh, Abiathar. But in actuality, the priest at that time was named Ahimelech. Uh-oh. Well, what does this mean? Well, Abiathar was the son of Ahimelech. He was a much more significant priest. Uh, and it's mentioned here, if you're looking at the ESV, you can see a footnote. I think it's footnote number four. Uh, by Abiathar, the high priest, in the time of. It, also, it could also be uh, in the passage about. So often Hebrew texts were organized based on who the dominant priest was at the time. So probably the case was this account, 2 Samuel 21, was placed in the time of Abiathar, the high priest. So just if you're concerned, wanted to point that out. Um, so David and his men, they're hungry, they're famished. They come to the tabernacle and they eat the bread of presence, the show bread, as it's often called. Uh, this, this bread was placed there Sabbath day after Sabbath day. And like Jesus says here, only the priests could eat this. But David and his men eat it. The point that Jesus is trying to make is that if David had the authority to make that kind of call about the true intention of the Sabbath law, then how much more does Jesus have the, that kind of authority, who himself is Lord of the Sabbath? Now, who is it that instituted and created the Sabbath? It's God himself. He's the bridegroom. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. See the claim of the authority here. So Jesus is saying that the Pharisees' view of the law, that those hedges, that, that ADT system, was unnecessarily strict. Jesus and his disciples didn't infringe on the heart of what's behind the Sabbath. Um, and just as a side note, uh, the Sabbath command is the only command that's not repeated in the New Testament uh, of the Ten Commandments. And so we see also uh, that early Christians didn't worship on the Sabbath day. They worshiped on the first day of the week, Sunday, to commemorate uh, the Lord's resurrection. Right? And so now we, the, the Bible refers to that as the Lord's day. And in Christ, we are free. So under each one of our consciences, uh, we devote the Lord's day to the Lord, to activities that are for the Lord. Um, side note, if you want to talk more about what the Sabbath means today, I'd be, I would love to talk to you about that afterwards. What Jesus is saying here is that the Sabbath wasn't made to be burdensome. That God didn't give it to restrict life, but God gave it to give life. And friends, that's true about following and obeying the Lord in our entire lives. Do you ever think to yourself, or do you, do you ever have friends who try to convince you that you are somehow missing out on life because you are quote-unquote religious? Well, does, does following Jesus come at a cost? Absolutely. And we, we want to stress that often. And Jesus stresses that often. However, are we missing out on anything? We take a couple steps back. Who is the one who made us? 
Who is the one who designed us? Who is the one who knows how we work? If it is God who made us, if it is God who designed us, then wouldn't he know what is best for us? Friends, that, that's, that's why this is here. This reveals who God is and how we live before him. He designed us to live for him. But we replace him with other things that he's made. Romans 1, we replace the creator with the creature. So in, in actuality, real slavery is living outside of the one who made us. Real slavery is living outside of God. And true freedom is living for God, the one who made us and loves us and stands over us. Don't think you're missing out on anything. And where do we begin in living for God and finding life? You look behind me. We begin on the way of life by coming to the one who is life. It is by Jesus' death in our place that we are redeemed out of the slavery of living outside of God, that we are saved from our own sin and our own folly, and we are brought back to our creator and our maker. And we don't gain this freedom to live for God by earning it ourselves. We gain this freedom by trusting in the one who has earned it for us. So friends, don't turn living for God, what should be a joyous and life-giving thing, into something that is burdensome and taxing. Something that's all about what you can't do, something that's all about what you're missing out on. Turn living, into, uh, living for God into something that is real joy. Other places in the Bible, in the book of Matthew, Jesus says he uses a parable of one who finds a treasure in the field. If we don't realize that we have a treasure, we're going to have a really hard time living for the Lord. So, friends, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, came to earth, took on flesh, not to restrict life, but what he says, he says he came to give life so that we may have life and have it abundantly. The one who has this authority calls us to forsake living for creation and come to him, trusting in him completely that we may have freedom. <clears throat> Last point, more briefly, Jesus changes malice to mercy. So we see Jesus is the bridegroom. Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. So in light of the great authority of who he is, there's call for celebration. There's cause for joy. We're in the final section. We see again Jesus' authority to know God's real heart behind the law, that God means to give life, and that God means to show mercy. And that shines brightly against the dark malice of the Pharisees. So notice chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. Chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, 
come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. Those again, the question and the response. Continue to see similarities between all of these stories. And we start out each one by finding the question that sort of anchors the whole account. This time, it's not the people who, who ask the question. It's not the Pharisees who ask the question. It's Jesus himself who asks the question. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to kill? And why does Jesus ask this? You go back to chapter 3, verse 1. He's in the synagogue. He sees a man with a crippled hand. And the man probably didn't show up to synagogue that day thinking he was going to be the subject of public controversy. But nonetheless, he's there. Jesus comes in the synagogue, and he's aware that something fishy is going on. Something smells fishy. It's more than just a fishing village. He's aware that the Pharisees have perhaps have placed this man, this man with a handicap, to try to ensnare Jesus. It just shows us, friends, when our, when our heart is in sin, when we are in the midst of sin, we, just, we know no rational bounds, that they would use a man with a handicap as a ploy. And verse 2 says that they were watching Jesus so that they could accuse him. Sidebar again, if, you, if people around you know that you're a Christian, right, if they know that you follow the Lord, that you love Jesus, don't be surprised when they are extra scrupulous about your behavior. Right? Knowing that, we, we should ask God for grace to live quiet and patient and faithful lives being honest about our sin when we do sin, and also give us grace to remember 1 Peter 2.12, which says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles or unbelievers honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. People are watching, friends, just like people watch Jesus. Sidebar over knowing exactly what's going on. Instead of the Pharisees asking Jesus, Jesus turns the tables and asks them. He tells the man with a withered hand to, to come to him, to come here. It, it literally says, come in the middle. The synagogue, uh, shaped like a rectangle. Each side, sort of two or three rows of terrace seating. And the teacher would be in the middle. So here, Jesus calls this man out and all eyes would be on him, on both of them. You notice the tension building. Jesus asks, first part of his question, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or harm? This part of the question relates to how Jesus would treat the man with a withered hand. For the Pharisees, if there was a medical condition that could wait till the next day, that wasn't urgent, they say, leave it till the next day. So here, Jesus is more concerned with actual people. Like Micah, chapter 6, he's more concerned with showing kindness and mercy, especially to ones who are weak like this. 
So as Jesus' church, as those who follow him, our mission is to make disciples of Jesus, to, to teach and to preach, to instruct, to bring people in, to build people up. But our mission is also to be like Jesus. So here, who are the people in your lives who can't speak up for themselves, who other people ignore, or who are weak? How can you be like Jesus to those people? To follow Jesus is to care for those people like that. And I am so encouraged that there are many people here among us who do that, who, speak for, who care for those who are weak, who can't speak up for themselves. I am encouraged by you. We want to encourage you to keep going. Okay, we want to be faithful to care for those kind of people among us, uh, in our families, and those in our communities. Ultimately, not to earn God's favor or mercy, but because we have already received it ourselves. Second part of Jesus' question. He asks whether it's lawful on the Sabbath to save life or to kill. Now he's calling out those who are observing. He knows what they were there to do. They were there to accuse him. They didn't want Jesus to heal on the Sabbath, yet they were plotting to kill him on the Sabbath. You see the dark irony there? They were going to plot to kill him if he healed a man. And Jesus wanted to let that sit for a second. Verse 4 says they were silent. And Jesus was angry and grieved that they were unwilling to understand. But he doesn't respond based on pulling numbers. He doesn't respond because he knows what is best, what will work out for him the best. He tells the man to stretch out his hand. And keep in mind that all attention was locked on him. Keep in mind that everything was silent. All focus, locked in. This, man, this was a risk for this man with a withered hand. If he reached out and trusted Jesus, he may have been shunned by the synagogue. Who knows what the religious authorities would have done. But in this moment, when Jesus calls him to reach out your hand, to stretch out your hand, you know what this man does? He stretches out his hand. So here we see in all these accounts, Jesus is the bridegroom. Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus brings joy. Jesus brings freedom. Jesus brings life. You know what Jesus does? He calls us to stretch out our hands and to take his Maybe you need to do that for the first time. Maybe you need to do that again and again and again. We all need to do that again and again and again to continue to rest and find our joy in him. So, brothers and sisters, in conclusion, know that the hand that has power to heal and to restore and to forgive and to liberate is the hand that has been pierced by a nail. And verse 6 gives us a preview of the cross. We've seen more and more the greatness of, of the authority of Jesus, that he brings new life and mercy based on who he is. Yet, friends, the continued and increasing controversy here that even unites groups like the Pharisees and the Herodians that hated one another shows us that opposition is a part of God's plan. And it doesn't take Jesus by surprise that the wisdom of our God is that even though the cruel and evil act of taking away the bridegroom, there comes joy and freedom and life even through that. So stretch out your hand. 
come to him continually, find joy and rest. Jesus has brought something new. The bridegroom's here. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Conform us to the image of your son. Show us who he is more and more every day. Lord, we will leave this place. We'll get up from these pews. We'll get into our cars. And God, we'll go throughout these weeks, Lord willing, and we will be tempted to forget what we have seen. Lord, don't let us do that. Remind us who you are continually. Remind us of the joy that we have in Christ. Remind us of the freedom that we have and help us to live in it. For your glory and honor, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.